Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and truth. I am your host, Sean McCraney. We're going to begin with a prayer from my turtle-hunting, mama-squirrel-eating brother in Christ, Nathan. Lord God, we just want to be humble before you, Lord, and penitent, and we pray that your love will manifest between Sean and Matt today, that they will glorify you in this discussion. And we're so thankful for what you did for us on the cross, Lord, for the pain that you endured for us and for the blood that you shed for us, that we would be saved through that which we deserve that you took on. And we just want to glorify you with our lives and always give you all the credit that you deserve that is yours. And we say these things in your name, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, my brother. Uh, you know, <clears throat> by the end of this week, probably 2,000 people around the world probably more around the world than in Utah uh, these days, will watch this debate within 12 months, somewhere probably between 25,000 and 50,000 people will watch this discussion, not a debate between Matt and I. And they will be from all the Canada, UK, New Zealand, Australia, Guam, Ireland, Russia, Spain, Finland, Afghanistan, and 40 other countries. And uh, we just want to uh, thank you guys for tuning in tonight and for Matt Slick coming and joining us. And we're going to have a discussion about the Bible. That will be a primary discussion, I hope, or he hopes. And hopefully we can stick to that. But we just want to start off with a quick spot from Cassidy McCrane. I want to thank Cassie for that. Just to let you know, she just does these. She doesn't get an assignment from me. She uh, just suddenly has an inspiration and puts them together. Really grateful for uh, her applying her efforts. Grateful for our volunteers and staff uh, are directing and doing the audio and visual, the cameras, the food, the people who are with us here live tonight. Grateful everyone arrived here uh, safely. And we also thank Steve Utley from uh, Colorado for the score of that spot. Great stuff. Uh, on a peacekeeping mission tonight, I hope. And hopefully more and more, uh, our ministry will be about peacekeeping and uh, sharing truth and love. We're excited to have Matt, a returning guest on the show, founder of CARM, 
He's going to talk, uh, I think, about this is their 21st anniversary today. And so, uh, you know, that's very excellent. And I reason. Carm, not marriage. Of Carm. Yeah, Carm. Started Karm. 21 years ago. That's right. That's right. Uh, host of his own radio program here in the Intermountain West. It's heard by a lot of people. I go to CARM and I need insights and information on things. Matt and I, we tend to disagree on a number of things relative to the faith. Uh, having, but we have remained friends. We've been able to talk, break bread. And uh, like I said about Adams Road a few weeks ago, he has my deepest respect as a Christian man for still being willing to associate with me, uh, though he doesn't agree with me. And it's not gone unnoticed, and uh, so thank you, Matt. Uh, Matt is a well-educated, um, well-versed believer, skilled in providing Christian answers based on his understanding of the Bible. Matt attended Westminster in Escondido, California. It's a Reformed college primarily, I guess I could say that. He can clarify if I make mistakes. Seminary. Seminary. He's a five-point Calvinist, uh, which is no surprise if you, if you go to Westminster. Uh, eschatologically, he's a partial preterist. He's a Trinitarian through and through, a believer that eternal hell and torments are for all those who do not receive Jesus Christ in this life. Yep. And he strongly, and he can correct me, uh, speaks against uh, homosexuality and homosexuals, against Islam, Catholicism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, and uh, he debates well-known atheists as well. He's, he's pretty astute in what he does. Anyone who knows anything about Matt knows that his apologetic uh, approach is based on his interpretation and understanding of the Bible, interpretations which he shares with millions of people through CARM, his website. And Matt stridently maintains many things he strightly maintains that many things are answerable from Scripture, and he's typically not shy to say, I can answer that. I have the answer. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, and I believe it's a spectrum uh, that's in the body of Christ, uh, you have the likes of me. Uh, I believe, Matt may not, but I believe Matt and I share an ardent love for the same Jesus. I believe that we share an ardent devotion to the same God. Uh, both of us, I believe, both of us have a love for the Word of God. I know Matt does, and I certainly know that I do. Um, but unlike Matt, I do not have an accredited religious education behind me. I'm not a promoter of the Trinity. Um, I don't dismiss people who believe in the Trinity as Christians. Fine. I just don't promote it myself. I do not believe in afterlife punishment in the fashion that Augustine set it up. And I relentlessly reject almost all the five points, almost all, of Calvinism theologically. And we openly embrace and welcome people of all faiths to uh, all lifestyles. Every single thing, believing that God will reconcile all people to himself in the end. And, uh, uh, but only a few will be saved. I want to make that distinction. So additionally and more to our discussion tonight, I am a full preterist. And meaning I believe everything is fulfilled in Scripture and completed when it comes to the Bible. And that it, its actual history uh, reflects what was for believers of that day. And that is today much more of a map for every individual to take and read and grow spiritually thereby to hear it taught 
and to take the spiritual lessons that come from it rather than it being a manual that gives brick and mortar religious leaders authority over others. I absolutely personally do not believe the Bible gives us that. So in an age when many Christians seem to worship the Bible, I appreciate C.S. Lewis quote, which we put at the back of this place where we have church. It says, it is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the word of God. The Bible read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers will bring us to him we must not use the Bible as a sort of encyclopedia out of which texts can be taken and used as weapons, end quote. So with that, we've agreed to talk about the Bible tonight. And again, the book we both love. And I got to emphatically say, we, we, if you look at our Bibles and you watch what we do with our lives, we both love the Bible. But specifically, I hope we can explore two things. And I want to present this to Matt, and then he's going to have a chance to talk and open up and say whatever he wants. And then I'm going to ask him some questions. And these questions haven't been formulated to try to trick Matt. I want to know answers to the questions. I want to hear. And if he gives answers that uh, improve my view, change my view, I'll, t I'll take it. I'll, I'll change. But I really want to see, when talking about the Bible, if these questions can be adequately. So the first part, first hour, so to speak, the question is, what biblical proofs are there that support the present-day notion that the Bible was written for people today as a manual of orders and rules that Christians have to obey and implement materially? Where, that's such an important question, it's long, I'm going to rephrase it, I'm going to restate it. What biblical proofs are there that support the present-day teaching, the present-day notion that the Bible was written for people today to be a manual for orders and rules that Christians must obey always and implement materially? We'll spend the first half hour or 45 minutes talking about this. The second point in the second hour I want to talk with Matt about is what justification does a person or a people have? We'll use Matt and or Calvinists as an example. What justification do they have to say or think that their specific view of the Bible, that their view of the Bible is correct or the superior view? In other words, why is Matt's view of the Bible superior to mine or yours or his or theirs? So there it is, and that's the general two topics. I'll rephrase them if we can't remember them. Brother Matt Slick, welcome. So to our first general topic, I'll let you go, and then we'll rephrase that first question. Anything you want to say? Let me go. I mean, I don't have to stay here? You can go okay. <laughs> if you'd like. Um, well, I hope we have a good discussion. Uh, let me just say that uh, I absolutely unequivocally, undeniably believe that the scriptures, the 66 books, are the infallible inspired word of God, and I defend that. And I base my theological perspectives on what the word of God says. Now, yes, there are differences of interpretations. And if you follow me on the radio show or on the website or in debates, you know that I'm quite willing, and hopefully, without sounding arrogant, able to be able to defend my position from scripture. I've changed my view many times over the years because I've studied the Word of God. It doesn't mean I'm always right, but I will quote you scripture, which is what I do in the radio. 
I will quote you the verse. I got lots of verses memorized, but it's not to brag, it's to say, you need to check out what I'm saying. That's the purpose. Jesus appealed to the Word of God. The apostles appear, appeared to the Word of God. Now, Jesus is called the Word of God, and that quote from C.S. Lewis up there, well, I'm sorry, but C.S. Lewis is wrong. The Bible is called the Word of God. You can go to uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 36, Romans 9, 6. The Word of God, not the Bible, the 66 books, you know, made in the, or officially put together in the, in the 400s, or whatever you're going to call it. But the Scriptures of God are called the Word of God, by the Word of God, by Paul the Apostle, for example. We understand what the Word of God is. See, the Word of God is that. The inspired documents from God through His people, His prophets and His apostles, Old and New Testament, they wrote, and everything that they wrote in the original documents are absolutely factually correct. And yes, they were written, some was written to Timothy, some were written to the Romans, some were written to here or there. But the truths in them have application because they are to us as well, because they are the issue of truth. We are to follow truth, and the truth is that the Word of God reveals that truth to us. If we don't follow the Word of God, then the only thing that's left is subjectivity. Subjectivity is self-refuting. Subjectivity leads to error. Subjectivity leads to division. Now, yes, there are divisions in the body of Christ, but the reason there's divisions in the body of Christ is out of Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. There are, we are allowed to have differences of opinion on debatable issues. The non-essentials, we don't debate about those. I can tell you what those essentials are from the Scriptures themselves. The debatable issues, those are the things that we need to show very much grace over them. I've got a good friend Nathan and Lindsay here, and we don't agree on everything, but we don't agree in the debatable issues. As far as the essentials go, that's the issue. The unity in the body of Christ is in those essentials and in the, the uh, what we call audiophor, the non-essentials. That's where the opportunity is for us to show love to one another because it's possible we could be wrong. I'm a very, 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 very strong five-point Calvinist. I would love to just sit with any of you and just defend it. But I also believe that I may not be right on some of those things. And because of that, you may be right, and so I will show you love and I will show you respect. That's what's to happen with the Word of God. When we come to it, we don't always agree. That's where denominations are formed. They form in the fragmentation of the non-essentials and those who don't, do not listen to Christ and the love that we're to have for one another. But the essentials are there in the faith. We don't want to mess with those because they're revealed in the Word of God. If you don't have the Word of God as a final authority on things, then we have no essentials and we have no faith. This is an important topic. We need to, um, hopefully, get to the issue of the Word. It's perspicuity, sufficiency, inerrancy, eternality, and um, other things. So hopefully we'll see how it goes. Excellent. Uh, I agree with Matt on uh, the Word of God and its application. I think its application and what it says. I believe the Word of God. I read the Word of God. But I, uh, I question the claim that we agree on the essentials. I think uh, we did a show about four months ago, three months ago, where we listed on a board what different scholars, scholars said were the essentials. And one guy gave four, and one guy gave eight. And I consulted Carm, and I looked at Matt's list. Matt had a number of essentials that were core essentials, and then what would you call them, secondary? Primary and secondary essentials. Primary and secondary <laughs> essentials. And the list got long. And really, really, in my opinion, his secondary essentials wound up being primary essentials in the end. So, I mean, the, my question is, we're going to get to who's right. We're going to get to how we know whose opinion here is right. But the, the question to start off, I hope, is 
Matt, what biblical evidences are there that support the present-day notion that the Bible was written for us today as a manual of orders and rules, new law, a new, not just a New Testament, a new law that is filled with directions in a New Testament that we have all taken and decided a thousand ways to Sunday say something different. I want to know where in the Bible does it tell us that we need to use the New Testament letters strewn out over a period of time, collected over hundreds of years, finally agreed upon. Where in the Bible does it say we are supposed to, in this day and age, take that Bible at 300 A.D., at 500, 1,000, 1,500, 1,800, the year 2016, and divide and fight over the law, the new law, where does the Bible tell us we're supposed to do that? Because when I read it and I study it, I see letters and epistles that have absolute material, material application to an audience in that day. But I see spiritual lessons that are applicable to believers today. So that's my question, Matt. Where are the biblical evidences that support the present-day notion that the Bible was written for us today and we are supposed to take it and use it like an Old Testament was to the Jews. We use the new uh, like the old did. That's my question. First question. Well, I would say it's a wrong question. So you can't answer it? Oh, I didn't say I couldn't answer it. Answer it then. It's, it's, it's the wrong question because does it actually accurately reflect what the Scripture and what the Bible is about? If the Bible is about Jesus, in John 5, 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it is these that bear witness of me. Jesus is now saying that the Bible is about Him. If we're to ask, is the Bible a set of rules and regulations that we're to obey now? Well, that's really not the right question. What does the Bible say that it's for? That's the right question. What does the Bible say about itself that it's for the Christian church? Well, the Bible tells us that the Word of God is inspired, Theopneustos, 2 Timothy 3:16. And it's profitable for correction in all areas, and for reproof and for teaching. So we should be saying, according to what the Scripture says, what does it say about itself that we are to follow? That's what we should be asking. And then we have to go into the Scriptures to see. And see, well, it does say this. For example, we're to love one another. Now, I'm going to tell you, a lot of people have just snotted all over you, Sean. A lot of people have. And uh, because for me, the Bible says, at one point, separate from those who cause division in the body of Christ, Titus 3.10. But it also says go out after the, the, one, the lost sheep. I'm not saying you're lost and I say it. I'm just saying the principle of seeking people and working and loving and things like that. And Jesus says the, the world will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another, John 13, 35. So I use the scriptures to guide me in my understanding. I use the scriptures to curtail my misunderstandings, hopefully. I use the word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, and what it says about itself, and the covenant aspects of the Old and New Testament, I look at it and say, how do I apply what it says in my life? It's not a set of rules and regulations, because according to Paul in uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 4, those who have died in Christ have died to the law. Amen. So there is no law that's applicable to us. Amen. So we don't have these laws that we're to keep, unless it's the law of love. Love one another. Actually, Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37 and 39, which he quotes respectively from Deuteronomy 6, uh, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18, he says, love God and love your neighbor. These are the things we're to do. Now, I like to say, if we love God and we love our neighbor, then what we're going to be doing is accidentally keeping
keeping all the law that we're supposed to keep. So that's what I like to say. What's the right question? I don't think the question is the right question. But it's a question, Matt, yeah, because I want to know, because we read... There Paul, isn't any list we, like we that. Open up, we open up the Bible, and, and Revelation says, to the seven churches, to the seven churches, we take the book of Revelation, we've applied it for 2,000 years, we read it, we say it means this, we say it means that. It was written to the seven churches. We take it and we say, no, it's written to us. Who gives us the right to do that? It's in our Bible. What has it done for us? What's the fruit of the book of Revelation? What has it done for the body of Christ? What has it done for believers united together or has it divided us? When you bring in the letter and you don't bring in the spirit, you bring in the letter, it always divides. Now, Matt has talked well about what the Bible does that's good. And I agree with everything he said. We teach the Bible every Sunday and we go into it. I agree with him, but I do not agree with the general assessment he's given us. And I think, I think that we have proof of it because the Bible has never really played an, a whole role in the church until the 1500s. We didn't have it. We did, I mean, they'll say, oh, we had all the letters. Who had the letters? The Catholic Church had the letters. Who, was it gathered together? Which ones were accepted? Which ones weren't? What were Luther's Antolomegana or whatever you say? What, the problem is, is we take it and, we, and, and we're going to get to specifics in a minute, but we take it and we say, he says we agree on the essentials. We have people say, you got to be baptized. Then we say, you got to be baptized by immersion. You know, you've got, you got to be baptized by sprinkling. Now, Matt would say, I can tell you what it is, but we're going to get to the subject is who says Matt's right? Why is Matt the right one? And then, and then when it comes to towering intellectuals, how do we know what is the truth? Is it by intellect? First Corinthians tells us, no, it's the broken, it's the meek things of the world. So the idiots really should be teaching us the Bible, not the scholars. I mean, why do we look at our scholars as if they have all the answers? It should be the broken and the humble and the people who can't even read to teach us the truths of God in this modern day Christian era. But instead, we keep going like lawyers to a book and we say Sabbath day. We say speak in tongues to prove you've been saved. We say you've got to believe this eschatology or that eschatology. You've got to use this word to describe God. If you don't, you're not a Christian. I don't see. Jesus told his apostles, go out and speak. Go out and speak. Go out and speak. They wrote later. You know, it was called the Word of God when the printing press. I know it's the Word of God, but the, when, the, when the New Testament started to be captured as the Word of God was when the printing press came about. Because before that, they had scribes writing the Word of God, and the Catholics had control. But when the printing press came out, everybody started vying for sales. And so they started saying, who has the right translation of the Word of God? Just look at your history, and so they, that's the question I want to know. How much time since the death of Christ passed before believers could possess the whole word of God? Matt is big on saying we have to take the whole word of God. We've got to know the context. We've got to know what it says in Genesis and Ezekiel to understand Revelation. You've got to understand all this, right? So you've got to have the whole word of God. You just can't have one epistle and call it the word of God. You've got to have the whole word of God. How long was it since Christ before believers had the whole word of God? I'll stop there. A lot of questions. Um, how much time was it? Did you have the whole word of God? As soon as the last epistle was written, the whole word of God was available to the church. Because God ordained that when the apostles wrote the last thing, 
that was it. And when you say, was it available, do you mean where every single individual had a copy? That kind of question is different than whether or not the Lord God had provided to the body of Christ those scriptures that were then available through the teaching of the, of the apostles. The apostles and their disciples and the pastors and the teachers, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, were called by God to take that word, which they would have access to, because copies were made of the documents and placed all over the place. And don't forget, remember, Christianity was largely under heavy persecution in the first two, three centuries. And so it wasn't until about the third century or so that it had calmed down enough for them to be able to get together and have councils and discuss various issues. And they appealed to the scriptures in order to do that. And yes, we had to discuss how the scriptures arrived at and which ones, and that's another topic. But <clears throat> the thing is, well, they had the whole Word of God available as soon as the last epistle was written. Done. That's the right answer. Now, what we need to do is look at the scriptures because we've got to avoid something that's really important. Subjectivity. I deal with subjectivity in Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, in atheism, a lot of Christians. Subjectivity. You've got to, be you've got to understand a principle. We want truth. And as I was talking to somebody earlier about this, look, let me give you an illustration of something. Two plus two is four. It makes sense. All right. But why does two plus two equal four? We have two rocks, two rocks, you have four rocks. Why does that work? Why is it we can take mathematics, physics, and we can build a roller coaster on paper, have the guys build everything out, flip the switch, and everything works perfectly? It's because the truth of math and physics relates to actuality. Real simple principle. Now, there are also truths, moral truths. There are truths about you know, philosophical truths that relate to actuality as well. And I'm bringing this up for a reason, bear with me. You see, if someone were to say, there is no such thing as absolute truth, he's making an absolute truth statement, he's refuting himself, therefore you ought not believe him. What we ought to do is believe what is true. So if something is true, we ought to believe it. Are the scriptures teaching truth? Now he mentioned, you know, it's one epistle is written to one person, another person. Well, let me show you something. In First Peter, excuse me, in First Timothy chapter two, verses eleven and twelve, or twelve and thirteen, Paul says, "I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but remain silent, for Adam was first created." So Paul ties this issue of silence into the created order, because Adam was first created. Therefore, it's not cultural. The word silent in Greek is hesukia, not sagao. Hesukia means you can be even more silent. In other words. Keep it down, they can still speak. Now, well, people say, well, that's just cultural. It was only written to Timothy at that time. The very next chapter, now this is what we've got to think about, for example. The very next chapter in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says these, that he is giving instructions to the entire church. Now, wait a minute. If it was written to Timothy, and Paul's saying, I'm giving you instructions on the, how the household of God is to operate and behave, does that include us today? Yes, it does. So to, to, we can ask the question, well, it was only written to, to Timothy. Yes, it was. Does it can, contain truth in there? Is it because of Adam being first created, primogeniture, that that is the issue of the authority structure in the church? Yes. Is it true? Yes. It was meant to Timothy, right? Yes. Is it applicable to us today? Yes. Why? Because it's true. It's not a cultural truth, simply because uh, it's not cultural. 30 seconds or minutes? 30 minutes. And so it's, a, it's not just a cultural truth because Paul says, because Adam was first created. That's a created order. It's now a doctrinal thing that he says is for the church. This is simple stuff. It's not an issue of relativism. If you were to say, well, you know what? The Spirit of God's going to tell me what the truth is about this. Well, then we don't need the Word of God, do we? If it says what it says and it's true, 
then ought we not believe it? These are the principles that we use when we come to the Word of God. See, and when we get to the issue, what justification he asked, because there's a lot of stuff he asked, does a person have to say that their specific view of the Bible is correct? I'll tell you the exact answer. My view of the Bible is correct insofar as it matches with Scripture. Your job is to go out there and check. Acts 17, 11. The Bereans were more noble-minded because they checked even what Paul the Apostle said against the Word of God. You're called to do that. You are called to check what I say against the Word of God, which is why I quote the references. So you can go see if I'm right. I've had a lot of people tell me over the years, Matt, you really irritated me. But I kept checking what you said, and yeah, you're right. And I said, oh, that's, well, that's why I believe it. Now, sometimes my interpretations might be wrong, and I, I grant that. How do we know that? By looking at the Word of God. The Word of God is the final authority, not my subjective experience about what I think it means. It's the Word of God. Because if we don't have the Word of God as a standard, then anything goes. And if you get a revelation from God that contradicts Scripture, it's false. And if it agrees with Scripture, you don't need a revelation. Either way, Scripture is a final authority. Um, Matt said, then we don't need the Word of God, do we? And that's my point for the question. Uh, Christ came, he lived, he died. His apostles came, they spoke. They later wrote 30, 40, 50, 60. If, you're, if you believe Revelation was written in 95, you're talking about many years later. Uh, I asked the simple question, when was it available? You have a letter written, an epistle written at a time when it was handwritten on papyrus in Rome, which is, 50, which is 1,300 miles, 1,200 miles from Jerusalem. Are you telling me the people uh, who got the epistle to the Romans also got it in Jerusalem when travel was impossible? He says, then we don't need the word of God. My point is that once Jerusalem was destroyed, the last apostle died, what did the believers have? They did not have a collection of the word of God. No matter what picture Christians have tried to paint, we have to wake up. God led by the spirit. That's how he leads his church. We've become lawyers, and we've said, oh, we've always had the Word of God. We have not. For the first 300 years, they couldn't even agree on what should be in there, what was a, what was a plagiarism, what was a false gospel, what was a true gospel. No one knew. For three, do you know what 300 years from today, we'd be in the 1700s. 1700s. Go back that far and say, that's how long we've been without the word of God in our hands. And that's just the first 300 years of the church. Now, some had elements of the word of God. And because I talk about this, do not say, I don't love it. I love it. But we've misused it. We've misused it. We cite it chapter and verse. We use it as a law. He says there's no law. You want to bet? We use that thing like a law to bludgeon each other. Until we realize that the spirit of love guides us, we read the Bible and individually, he doesn't like subjectivity, but individually we let God guide us as we read his word, as we read his word. But we do not have any right, the Bible never gives us a right, to stand up and say, listen, Paul said here to a people that was completely misogynistic, women can't speak in church because Adam, he gave him a reason. So in that day and age, we're going to continue to say that today? It has no bearing culturally today. What about all the other things? What about divorce? What was the whole thing? Are we going to follow that word to those people when it comes to divorce? Or are we going to invite the divorcees in 
and embrace them to understand who Jesus is, the good news. That's just two examples. How about the hair management of women? Is that cultural? It's in the word of God. He says every single word is the word of God. Well, women, they shouldn't have plated hair. And then let's go on, how to treat widows. There's seven things that Paul says widows must do in order to be widows indeed. Are we gonna do that today? Or, but see, this isn't my point. My point is who decides? And we have every single person out there saying, we decide this, we decide that. Oh, they're not doing that? They're not doing that with widows? They're not baptizing by immersion? They're not speaking in tongues the minute they're, they're saved? And what we've done is we've created division because that's what the law does. What did God say he would do in the last days? He said, I will write my laws upon their heart and upon their mind and all men shall know me and none will say to his neighbor, let me teach you, let me cite you chapter and verse. None will say that because all will know me. That's what he says. He writes in this day by the spirit. What did the early Christians have? They had the spirit. They were blessed by the word as it unfolded. They had direction as it unfolded and came together. But it went through 1,500 years, 1,500 years before they, any believer ever had the compilation, the whole word of God, which we're supposed to take to understand. And they, it took 1,500 years for God to give it to us. Why? Because he didn't want us to have it. If he wanted us to have it, we would have had copies made somehow by him. But he didn't do that because the spirit reigns over the church. That's what we have to get back to. And until we get back to it, we will forever become lawyers. We'll forever be saying, what about giving slaves back to their owners? Paul talks about that. What about miracles? What about mass conversions? What about eating meat sacrificed to idols? Where's the cultural differences? Where do we use our minds to say, listen, that was for then. Let's just take the word by the spirit and move forward in love and we'll read it and we'll study it, but we'll let every single person, and this is my point for even doing this with Matt, let every single person have their opinion. If they, if they say Jesus is Lord, let's let them have whatever freaking opinion they want and let's keep teaching the word the best we can if someone stands up and says, I differ, say that's welcome. And get away from this law, legalistic system of religion. Matt. Oh, so much heresy, so little time. Um, if it feels like heresy to you, reject it, if it does. But if it makes sense to you, think about it. If it makes sense to you, is it true? That's the issue. Um, there's a lot of stuff here saying... Uh, I'm writing them quickly, and see if, I can, if I can get to the starting point. Uh, the Bible wasn't in its full role until the 1500s. Not true. Uh, it was uh, around earlier than that. Uh, you can go to various canons that existed before that time. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, was apostate, and that's another topic all the time. We can talk about another time if you are interested. Um, not, don't look at the scholars. Scholars say that, well, I'm not sure what the context was, but Paul himself was a scholar, and Jesus specifically called him as a scholar. He quoted Epimenides, Erastus. He knew the pagan philosophies. He was very well studied. And you can go to Acts 17, and you can see his interaction with people there. This issue of baptism, tell you what, you want to do baptism sometime? I'll show you how the word is used in the scriptures and how um, uh, I can make the case that Jesus was sprinkled. Yes, I can, believe it or not, show in scriptures. Um, the failure of individuals 
when they look to the Word of God, doesn't mean the Word of God does not have the proper place of being the final authority. You're going to make a, there's a logic mistake. You see, we have the Bible, it's authoritative, it's accurate, it's true. And we have people who misuse it. And then we say, see, we can't trust this. That kind of implication is problematic. You see, the reason we have divisions of the body of Christ is not because the Bible isn't sufficient or correct or true. It's because of the subjectivity of personal preferences. You see, what we're going to have is people saying, look, the Spirit told me. And so therefore, the Spirit told me this, contrary to what the Spirit is telling you. Division. That's the problem. Now, if you listen to me on my shows and what I do, I say, this is what the Word of God says. Now, Jesus says, for example, in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So you know what I believe? Unless you believe that He is the I am, you're going to die in your sins. In John 11, uh, 35, He called forth, uh, you know, when He was going to raise Lazarus, Jesus wept. You know what I think that means? Jesus wept. This is not difficult. Now, I work against the cults. I work against false interpretive systems, which is what the cults produce. I would love to be able to discuss the issue of hermeneutical principles used to define and understand what basic Christian doctrines are. I know them very well, and I can tell you what the essentials are according to the Scriptures. For example, I just did in John 8, 24. And also can tell you that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 and verse 17, that our faith is in vain. That means you have to believe in the physical resurrection of Christ. This is Scripture saying this, not me. I could just read it to you. What I often do with people when they disagree with something about an essential, I'll quote it to them. They don't even know I'm quoting it to them. And then I'll, they'll say, I disagree with that. Oh, I'll quote it again. They disagree. And I'll show I'll just quote this reference. I'm just quoting the Scriptures. They understand what it means, and they're subjective experiences. They don't want what God's Word says. So what they do is they reject the clear teaching of God's Word, and they cause divisions in the body of Christ. Now, I did not say there was no law in the Bible. He said that. I don't say that. And I did not say that I don't like subjectivity. I like subjectivity. Be subjective. Submit it to the Word of God. Now, I think my wife's better looking than so-and-so's wife. That's a subjective opinion. I think chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla. And it is. Okay. You can disagree, but you'll be flat out wrong. There are certain subjective things which are by subjective in nature, and that's okay. But there are certain things in Scripture that are not subjective. You cannot just have any whimsical desire or whatever you want as defined issue what you say Jesus is. The Mormons are not Christians because they say Jesus is the brother of the devil begotten through sexual intercourse between God and his goddess wife who were exalted people from another planet. They worship aliens. That is not the true God of Scripture. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is Michael the archangel which means he stopped being an angel, became a man, stopped, became, stopped being a man, became an angel again. Continuity issues, logic issues. That's a violation of Scripture. Jesus Christ is God in flesh. You can't just say, that's who the, the Lord is I want. If you say that, you don't even have the faith anymore. Why would God give us the Word if He doesn't want us to look at the Word? Why would He give us the Scriptures in the Old Testament if He didn't want us to? Now think about this. In Deuteronomy 6.4, excuse me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Shema. So God says, Hear, O Israel. He's talking to Israel. Now, just a few verses later in Deuteronomy 6.13, God says, You are to, it says, You're to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, what's interesting is in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted by the devil. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. He said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship and serve the Lord your God and him, serve him only. Now, who was that written to? Israel. It wasn't written to Satan. 
but it was written to Israel. And so what Jesus did was submit even himself, God in flesh, to the authority of Scripture and quoted Scripture to the enemy, even though it wasn't written to the enemy. Why? Because it was true. He didn't even have to interpret it. He just quoted it. He said, this is what it says. This is what Jesus did. Should we do any less? Should we then say, I'm going to judge the Word of God as being subjectively true if I, by the Spirit of God, say it is or is not? That is dangerous. And sorry, that's how cults and false doctrines get started. What we need is the truth of God's Word. The Scripture is sufficient. Subjective interpretation of Scripture leads to division. That's where the problem is. Because people do not want to submit themselves to the authority of the Word of God. They want their own way, their own ideas, their own understandings. And so what they do is they subject the Word of God to what they desire. I'm in, in research with a feminist on Facebook. And everything in the Scripture is interpreted to, through her feminism. And the accusation that patriarchal systems in the Old and New Testament are misogynistic. She doesn't even believe the Word of God. She denies the Word of God in this because she's using her emotional preferences. Now, he said, we didn't even, if God wanted us to really use the Bible, why is it we didn't have it until the 1500s? The logic works in reverse as well. If he didn't really want us to have it until the 1500s, that's why we don't really use it. Now that we do have it since the 1500s, then we should use it. Then it should be the final authority. You see the issue of the logic? So uh, letting people have whatever opinion they want is dangerous. Jesus is the Lord. He's God in flesh. He has two natures. He's God and man right now. And if you deny that he's a man right now, you're in severe trouble. We can talk about that some other time, too. Um, let me first say that Paul the scholar that you said, Jesus was, was God had Paul the scholar uh, come in, and I believe that's true. But Paul the scholar wrote that God uses the weak beggarly elements to confound the yes, wise. So Paul the scholar is the one who gives us the idea that we don't need scholars to tell us how to think. We have the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about uh, chaos. I'm talking about things that people who have claimed Christ, who say he is Lord and Savior, who follow him by the Spirit, who want to do well, they want to seek God, they want to live Christian lives, when they have a difference of opinion. Uh, Matt equated it to chocolate and vanilla subjectivity. Well, I equate most of the things that people take in Scripture as chocolate and vanilla subjectivity. I mean, if you're sprinkled, dunked, immersed, spirit baptized, not baptized, that's chocolate and vanilla because that's not part of the good news. We have the good news. The rest of the stuff was the letters telling, the apostles telling the believers in that day how to get through the trials that were upon their heads that were coming, 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 with the, uh, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem. The apostles are warning them. All of that had place then. Its, it's place for us today is spiritual. I don't discount that. What we need is uh, the authority of the Word of God. Matt keeps saying that. He keeps referring to it. He says it's subjectivity that has caused all the divisions. What happened was there was one monolithic church and there was a subculture of believers. But then we come to the Reformation, and they came up and they gave us the solas. And the solas came up and they said, look, it, it's going to be Scripture alone. Scripture will be our authority. You never see a, a sola spiritus. It's not in there. Why not? 
because they said, no, that's too scary. We have a church. We're not perfect. We go by the Spirit. We let people believe whatever the heck they want and say whatever they want. We haven't deconstructed and grown horns and, and started killing each other. We get together. We read the word. People disagree. They, they talk. They go out to dinner together. They disagree with Sean. I don't like what he said about that. It happens all the time. We can do that as a worldwide body. That's what we need to do. A worldwide body instead of these guys who have their authority from the scripture interpreting it for us and telling us this is how you must. See it. This is the problem with making the word, which is supposed to be written on our hearts and written on our minds by God, making it back on paper and reading it as if it were law. So I want to go forward. And, and if, if you want to comment on this, but he says the authority of the Bible. So now I got to go to and I've seen this because I used to be LDS. Which Bible? And I see it more and more. Uh, why has God allowed so many darned different interpretations of the, of the Holy Word. How come he hasn't stopped? Well, I, it's okay. I understand his, his allowing us to freely do things. Did Satan do this or did God do it? Do we use the authorized version or do we use the West Cotton Hort? Does it matter? It matters greatly. Every week we teach verse by verse. I go through and I check. Let me tell you something. The conflict between them is not chocolate and vanilla. The conflict is great. I want to give you one example. In Revelation 1.6, we're in the book of Revelation. In, uh, in the King James, in the New King James, in the modern King James, it says, and God or ha and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. You read that, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. You go to the revised Westcott and Hort, revised translation, it says, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests. Is there a difference between being in a kingdom of priests and being kings and priests? There's a vast difference. This is one of hundreds. We can sit down and I'll pull them out. There are not just some minor comma problems and dating problems. There are manuscript conflicts that say absolutely different things. If we so we have division. He says it's from the subjectivity. I say it's from reading a book that we don't know. Now, listen, I read the book because by the spirit and it's for believers. It's not for the unbelievers. So we gather together as believers. We read it. We incorporate the messages that apply to our heart by the spirit that touch us by the spirit. And we let God, we let him tell us where we're wrong. And if we're off, guess what? He's a great shepherd. He can reel us back into where he wants to do it. But we don't need denominations and division to continually tell us, no, you can't be here. No, you got no, you to say this. No, you got to say it. The word proves it. I can show you from the authority of Scripture when we know good and well it's done nothing but divide. Matt. To say it's done nothing but to divide is not accurate. Okay. Uh, have, I'm sorry. Yeah, we have denominational uh, differences, sure. But um, to say that the Scriptures have done nothing but divide isn't true. That would mean every individual is divided from another individual. That's not accurate. Now, yes, Paul did write that God uses the weak to confound the wise. In other words, you're appealing to Scripture for that. I, I commend you for that. Um, how we know which interpretation is correct? When you want a class on how to interpret the Scriptures, we can go through the best way to do that. And uh, I can show you. I can show a lot of you people here. 
uh, denominational preferences you have that aren't even in the Bible. Uh, I can expose things. It's one of the things I do. That doesn't mean everything I say is right. But, you know, these are all things that we need to learn as Christians in order to better understand the Word of God. See, we have differences of opinion. You know what? That's okay. Now, I'm a five-point Calvinist. been married almost 30 years. Next month, it's 30 years, praise God. Poor woman. But uh, 30 years next, next month. And about, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, I asked my wife, uh, are you a five-pointer? She said, oh, yeah. I said, oh, okay. It wasn't that big a deal to me. I'm around defending it, debating it. It wasn't a big deal. Why? Because it's not an essentials of the Christian faith. I know the Calvinists out there are going to, you know, they're having a conniption fit. Call me if I'm a radio show, we'll talk. But the thing is that I know what the essentials are. Why? Because I've had to debate Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, Unitarians, and others. And when you do that kind of a thing, you hone down what the Bible says are the essentials. We can go through that another time if you want. I could do that gladly. Um, let's see. Uh, Jesus appealed to, oh, you know, the, the five solas. Well, let me just tackle a, a couple, three of them. Scripture alone is a final authority. Sola scriptura, folks, doesn't mean we don't look at, at uh, tradition. It doesn't mean we, we don't look at councils. We do. It means that sola scriptura means that the scriptures are, alone are the final authority. That's what it means. We look at councils. We look at traditions. We look at various commentaries. We look at stuff. But the scriptures are the final authority, and we submit ourselves to them to the best of our ability. That's what Jesus did. God in flesh, Jesus, he appealed to Scripture, as the Scripture says. And he, there's lots of places, if you go through the Gospels, look at the red letters, and you'll see he was referencing in the Old Testament a great deal. This is what he did. I'm not going to disagree with him. Paul did it too. You know, through Christus, uh, Christ alone is one of the solas. Christ alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Jesus said, or the Bible, yeah, Jesus said that no one guessed of the Father but by him. And that's Matthew 11:27. 27. You can go to John 14, 6. Or by grace alone, you know, Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or Romans 4.5. But to the one who does not work, but believes, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. This necessitates grace, Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace through faith you have been saved. These are the issues. Now, which, which Bible's right? Go through my notes. Which Bible? That's easy, NASB. That's the one that Paul the Apostle used. And I can show you that. No, the right one, in my opinion, is the original. No translation into the English is perfect. I'm sorry, but that's just the case. And I could give you a little Greek example, you know, anthropos, agathos, the good man. I can go to the nominative masculine, and I could, the singular, and I can show you why this means. And I can show you how, how things in different languages cannot be conveyed exactly into another language, but the dynamic equivalent can be. Why is it that we have different versions? Because of the, of the issue, for example, the NASB will say, we want to be as literal as possible to the original, the NIV might say, pretty literal, but a little bit more soft with more meaning. The, uh, the message, let's not be all that literal, let's really interpret it quite a bit. And so you might have things like that. Well, which do you want? What's the purpose behind each one? Me, as an apologist, I need as literal as possible. That's why I look at the Greek. That's why I, I will use the NASB. And as far as Revelation 1.6, I haven't, I popped my head, sorry. I don't know the textual issues behind it, really can't comment about it, but I can comment about manuscript divisions and issues, uh, reliability and all that kind of stuff. I've taught on it before. Uh, there are lots of things there. It doesn't mean the Word of God is not trustworthy. Look, what did Satan do? Not, I'm not calling you Satan, but I mean, what did Satan do in the garden to Eve? The first thing, well, did God really say? 
any way to doubt the Word of God to say it's not sufficient. And she changed the Word of God. God says don't uh, eat of the tree or touch it. Modification of the Word of God. Then Satan saw the modification, the reinterpretation, and then contradicted the Word of God. That is subjectivity right there, folks. God wants the subjectivity left. I mean, excuse me, I'll bring the words. God wants subjectivity in, in our hearts, in our churches, so that we can have division, so that we will not bow our knee and our hearts to the Word of God and seek to understand what He's given us. That's where division comes in. It's right there in Genesis chapter 3. Read the first few verses. Uh, I'm going to wrap up this section, and then Matthew's going to have the final word in the second section in our concluding remarks to make it fair. Um, <clears throat> the scriptures are the final authority. Whose interpretation of them? I have to keep going to that. He repeats that mantra, but I want to know whose interpretation. When you take the Greek and you translate it into English, you take the Greek that is this many words and you translate it into a language with this many words. You've automatically changed the literal interpretation of the word. And that's one direct manuscript you have in front of you from a Paul's hand to English is an interpretation. We interpret Scripture by the Spirit. That is what God has given us. But the Spirit is primary. The, the Scripture is secondary. It's referential. The Spirit is primary and preferential. We've reversed that. He says, let's go to the final authority, but we cannot agree on what the very best minds say about some of the most simple Simple ideas in scripture. Matt says, I can show you. He said, I can do that. I can do that. I can show you how to properly use proper hermeneutics and an exegetical examination of scripture. I can show you. What about Greg Boyd? Greg Boyd is a great uh, uh, mind. Are we going to intellect of someone who can show us how to do hermeneutics? Greg Boyd and Matt would disagree on a lot. N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright's a genius. He is probably our, the most living a noted living scholar on the New Testament. In fact, he would disagree completely with, uh, with Calvinism. Completely. That's N.T. Wright. Leo Tolstoy. Paul Tillich. I'm, showing, I'm giving radical names. I'm giving conservative names. I'm giving people who are considered heretics. The problem is men cannot tell us. And men have always tried to say, I can do that. I can do that. I was chastised last night for saying, I don't know. I could be wrong. I was told that's a cop-out. That's not a cop-out. The cop-out is to say this is how it is because we don't know. We do not know what the hypostatic union really is. We do not know what the Trinity really is. We do not know much except like Paul said, and I quote scripture and I love scripture and I apply scripture to my life, but we cannot take the word and use it as a sword to kill each other. And I think that's my whole point in trying to talk about this. Do not, please, do not go to the break, which we're going to go to right now, and say McCraney wants to throw away the word and, and reinterpret it just subjectively, and it's willy-nilly. That is not it at all. Study the word like Matt said. Go to the Greek. Go to the Hebrew. But those people out in Arkansas back in 1820 who didn't know the Greek but loved Jesus and gave their life for Jesus, they are better saints than I'll ever be memorizing that thing. It's the spirit, folks. It's the spirit. Come back after these messages. The spirit is 
the gunfight. The spirit is what we want to rely on in reaching people, and we don't want to use the word of God, though it is sharper than any two-edged sword, to stab and kill one another with. In my humble opinion, Knife to a Gunfight is one of the most important books that uh, we've produced in, uh, ever, and we hope you'll give it a chance. It's about misinterpreting the purpose and place of the Bible. It addresses the great things about the Word of God, uh, the book I spend my life in, love it. But this book goes into how we've taken this, the Word of God and we've used it as a knife and we've stabbed each other with it, and we've parted each other with it, instead of uniting with the content and letting it build us up in love and in the spirit. So consider getting it, hotm.tv, knife to a gunfight. One, two, three, four. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to Pray for those who spy.
I fully use you and persecute you. Okay, uh, we're going to continue on. Second hour, Matt and I are discussing uh, content of the Bible. What's the Bible about? Its application today. Uh, our second question tonight that I hope we can talk about seriously. Slow down even. I'll slow down. Uh, how do we know whose view is right when it comes to biblical interpretation? And typically at this point, Matt is a joke because he jokes a lot, would say something like, well, my view's right. That's, that he, that's his personality. But it, what, there's many people who believe that. But it's, it's really not a, it's not a funny thing. Um, making the Bible a mandated manual has caused us to do some great harm to people. To do the opposite of love, in my opinion. I want to know what qualifies one person or one group of persons or what one denomination to have the proper authority. What is it about them that gives them the proper authority? Is it the historical content that we look back at the early church fathers, those who, who quote the, the early church fathers the most? Or is it tradition that's been around the longest? Is it the creeds? Is it 
education? Is it popular vote? Who thinks that this, is it the minority vote? Is it ordination? Here we have Matt Slick. He's educated. He quotes scripture like no other. I'm amazed at his mind for scripture. And it's a gift from God because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it does divide between soul and spirit. So I, I love it. And, and his use of it is great. But he has people who wholeheartedly agree with his views. But like we ended with the last session, there are many, many people who are just as smart who differ greatly from Matt and differ greatly from me. And so what makes Matt's views more valid than mine? I have views. Today, I'm called a heretic. He says people have, I forget what he said, spit on me or something. They have, because my views aren't consistent with what they believe, what they've been taught. And, and yet, we have an audience that grows of more and more people who are hearing what my views and say, I like those, I agree with them. And, it's, and like he said several times, he may be wrong, I may be wrong. How do we know? I want to know how we know whose views are best on things like, and we'll come to this list, Sabbath day. Matt will automatically, to that specific question, say, I can tell you. But that does not solve a world of division within the body over Sabbath day, baptism, church governance, authority, church discipline, uh, the flood, creative periods, uh, age of the earth, picking up serpents in church. This stuff goes on and on and on. And we have people who say, I have the answer. So Matt, please help us understand how can we tell who has the right view? By comparing it to scripture. Okay, so let's talk about baptism. If you're going to give that answer, then let's talk about water baptism. Let's talk about water baptism. Oh. Yeah, let's talk about baptism then, okay. There are people who sprinkle. There are people who immerse. So Jesus was baptized, right? It's not that I'm looking to you for an answer about it. I want to show know you. why... You're going to give me your view of it. But Matt, people differ with your view. So which particular issue you want to discuss? The mode of baptism or is baptism necessary for salvation? It, it's not that I'm trying to get an answer on it. We've got to discuss it in order no, to get the I'm, truth. I'm trying to under, I, don't, I don't want you to tell me, and I, I'm trying to convey this right. My words aren't, aren't effective. Why is your interpretation, I know you can give me an interpretation of how baptism should be, but what I'm saying is there are a thousand other men or women out in the world who are believers in Christ saved, Matt, who disagree with your version of what you're about to try to tell me baptism is. So I want to know, how do you know? By looking to the Word of God. They all look to the Word of God. Okay. They so, all do. So then what we do okay. is we have these debates. Okay. Okay. Let's take baptism for an issue. All right. All right. So is baptism necessary for salvation? No, it's not. You can go to Acts 2.38. Repent and believe, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'll ask people, is that a formula for salvation? Because they're going to say baptism is necessary for salvation. And they'll say, yeah, it's necessary. It's a formula for being saved. And I say, then there's the word faith in there. Belief in there? No. So then it's not a formula for salvation. I just ask a critical question. They don't do the thinking. I've got to help them out. Sorry, but that's what happens a lot. Acts 2.38 is a famous example. 
they'll say it's a verse that demonstrates, for example, that baptism is necessary for salvation. But the verse doesn't even have faith in it at all. How could it then therefore be a formula for salvation? It cannot be. They might go to uh, Acts, uh, 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you, and they'll stop there. I'll say, read the rest of it. Read the whole thing. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal of God of clean conscience. It's corresponding to what? Read the previous verse, verse 20. It deals with Noah's Ark and the flood. What saved Noah's Ark? I mean, what's, excuse me, what saves people? Was it the Ark or was it the flood? Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not an appeal, not, not water, but an appeal. We can go into the exegesis of this. I show people these things, and they go, oh my goodness, I never saw that before. We go to Acts 10, 44 through 48, where people are speaking in tongues, which is a gift from the Holy Spirit to the Christian church, the redeemed. You can go to 1 Corinthians 14 for that. They're glorifying God, which an unbeliever cannot do. That's Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 talks about that. They can't. Yet they're exalting God, they're believing in God, they're speaking in tongues, and then, oh, and Peter says they've already received the Holy Spirit just as Peter had, just as we, they had. Then he says, now let's get them baptized. So I'll ask people, I'll say, if baptism is necessary for salvation, then were the people who were um, speaking in tongues, glorifying God, and already received the Spirit, but yet not were yet baptized, are they were still in a state of damnation? They say yes. How are you going to defend that from Scripture? It doesn't make sense. Just because they say it's the case doesn't mean it's so. And I ask more questions. Are you saying then that they are not saved even though they've trusted in Christ? Even though the Bible said we're justified by faith, Romans 5.1, Romans 3.28, Romans 4.15. And I can you know, go through these things. I do this with people. Just because people disagree, it doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean I'm right. Let's go to the Word of God. That's what you do. As you see, I'm trying to show you. This is what the Word of God says. And one of the things, and I'm going to say this is, you know, this is true, a lot of Christians just don't know how to do critical thinking. They don't know what questions to ask. They don't know how to put things together. They're taught not to think. They're taught to feel. They're taught to use their subjective experiences. They're taught to feel their way through the Scriptures and not do the heavy lifting of critical thinking and biblical exegesis. That's why the church is in such trouble, and that's why we do not have the ability to change our culture, which is what we're supposed to be doing. Where God has called us to do this at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We're called to do this by Jesus. And that's to the, that's to the whole church. He wants us to do that. But the issue of baptism, I, I've debated it before. I, I've written many, many articles on it before. The Bible says we're justified by faith, not by faith and a ceremony. These things are simple. You, you want to have a debate with a, the best baptismal regenerationist person you can get. Get them up here. We'll debate. We'll see how it goes. How do we know? Let the Scriptures be the final authority. And you've got to judge truth because you want truth, not error. What does the Scripture say? Who twists the Word? You've got to use your head to find it out. Who is the one who's being faithful to the Word? You've got to use your head to figure it out. So God wants you to do that and not relinquish your intellectual responsibility to a mere feeling. And I appreciate... Uh, Matt's uh, lesson on baptism, and I just I agree with him really. He, he, I agree with what Matt has to say about it. Unfortunately, the way he presents it, it makes it sound like the world would agree with him, but the world of Christians does does not agree with him. And we have people with PhDs hanging on their walls who speak Greek and Hebrew, and love the Lord and read the Bible who disagree with Matt. 
and their <laughs> congregations and denominations disagree with Matt. And so Matt has his view. He's against baptismal regeneration. I agree completely. But that's Matt's view. So my question again, how do we know? He will say you go to the word. This is what happens. It's a cycle. You, you just keep saying, okay, you say go to the word, but when we have the best minds and the lowliest minds reading the word, we have conflict. And then we have people saying, I don't know, should I, do I need to be baptized again? Should, should I be baptized by somebody who's been ordained? Should it be in, in warm water? The early church fathers said it must be in running water. So should we do it in a stream? And I don't know about that sprinkling that you did. And what about, and, and I did that in a humorous way, sort of, because that's what you face. I want to ask Matt a question, and I want you to tell me if I'm wrong. Matt, at campus, what we say is someone, we say we teach baptism the best we can, and then if someone says, I want to be baptized, we say, okay. And then they say, I want to be baptized by immersion, we say, okay. Or they say, I want to be baptized by sprinkling, we say, okay. We say, I want to be baptized by my friend, okay. I want to be baptized by my mom, who's a believer, okay. I want to be, okay. I want to be, okay, that's okay. Why, the, the real question we say is, why do you want to be baptized? Because I love the Lord and I want to publicly do it. You do it any way you want. Is there a problem with that approach, Matt? No. Okay, I love that. Why can't we do that? You see, Matt has been saying, let's go to the Word. We can get the answer from the Word, but we can't. He just made a great plea for why he can tell us how it is, but that doesn't work. And we can't go to the Word to get the answer because we divide. So I'm just saying, why don't we let everybody do and say and believe as they would like, as the Spirit is leading, and trust that the Spirit will lead them in the right way? Because let me tell you, when we die, we are all individually responsible to God. We are all, and Matt is right, you, you are responsible for the things that you're going to believe. You're responsible for the things you say are, are of your faith. You are responsible. So don't put it on a denomination to tell you. Don't put it on a man or this man or this. We put it right back on you. What do you think? And I agree with Matt. You've got to study it. And, and the Bible gives us great insights. But by golly, it is not going to solve it. It is not going to tell us what to do on most issues. Matt? Um. <clears throat> As far as baptism goes, I believe in, in sprinkling. And I also believe in pedo-baptism, but that's a, something I wouldn't uh, die on that hill. I have a covenantal aspect, uh, an examination of Scripture, you know, and I can give you reasons for that. I have no problem with a man or woman baptizing somebody else or sprinkling or, or uh, dunking. No problem at all. Uh, and we can go through reasons for that. Uh, believe as the Spirit leads you. Okay, please do that. Now, how do you know what the Spirit is leading you? I don't know about you guys, but my heart's pretty bad. It's pretty wicked. And I'm full of lust and pride and arrogance and selfishness. And uh, when I get to heaven, if by chance the Lord should say to me, hey, you know, Matt, you did these one things right. And I'm going to be looking behind me. Who's he talking to? And the reason is because, you know, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've got problems. I don't say, the Spirit told me. And I tell somebody, the Spirit told me this, let me tell you what he said. I don't do that. Now let me tell you folks out there, 
my conversion experience is rather different. The Holy Spirit himself was there. The Lord Jesus was there. It's on my website, karm.org. Look up my testimony. We're talking about heaving, weeping of conviction. We're talking about the inability to weep any deeper or any harder. We're talking about incredible depth of remorse for my own sin in the presence of incredible holiness. I cried more that day than the day I took the body of my son to the grave, carried him in my own arms. I wept hard that day. My experience of the presence of God is incredible. That happened when I was 17. I'll be 60 just in about uh, six weeks. Let me tell you something. I've calmed down quite a bit. But I subject even that experience to the Word of God. If anything in that experience that I had that is so profound of the Holy Spirit being there contradict the Word of God, then it's wrong, flat out. How do I know if the Holy Spirit's teaching you anything? I'm going to check it against Scripture. Benny Hinn, the flaming heretic, says, God told me. Joyce Meyer, the flaming heretic, says, God tells me this. People get revelations their personal revelations because they're using their personal subjective experience of what they think the Word of God is telling them, and I mean the Spirit of God, and then they're saying, the Lord told me. Really? We have these people teaching us heresies. How do we know they're heresies? Because the Word of God exposes our heresies. You know, for example, Joyce Meyer and others, let me just say this way, some positive confession people say that Jesus did not finish the atonement on the cross but he finished the atonement in hell at the hands of Satan. Jesus says in John 19.30, it is finished. Greek word tetelestai, that word's been found on the bottom of ancient Greek manuscripts signifying a legal debt paid in full. He said it was finished on the cross and 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his stripes we are healed. So the Bible tells us he bore our sin in his body on the cross and it was finished on the cross. Yet we have these idiotic heretical, oh, I want to say some bad things, flaming heretics that are ready to ignite. They're so bad, saying, the Spirit of God tells me. That's why we have divisions. That's why we have heresies. That's why we have false teachers. And because the Christian church does not submit itself to the Word of God and do what is necessary before the Word of God, it doesn't have the guts, doesn't have the ability, doesn't have the forthright strength to go and say, Buddy Hinn, you're a heretic. Joyce Meyer, you're a heretic. Joel Osteen, you couldn't preach your way out of a wet paper bag. And have the guts and the balls to say what needs to be said. Because when you don't have an authoritative system, you don't have an authoritative word, then anything goes. And you can never tell if anybody's right, if anybody's wrong. How do we know? Read the Word. You want me to teach you how to interpret the Word of God? I will teach you how to interpret the Word of God. Does it mean it'll be infallibly taught? No. But the principles are there. And the scriptures themselves even use some of these things that we can use. I can teach you. Does it mean we're not going to agree on everything? Oh, by the way, I've got to make a correction. Thanks for reminding me. I said that they, uh, Nathan and Lindsay said they don't agree with me in some of the essentials. I misspoke. Some of the non-essentials, they're good. Otherwise, I'd have to go. So, well, I, I was, might be misspeaking. Anyway, just to say that. I have the strength and the ability and the confidence to say, this is right and that's wrong. Why? Because I have a high view of Scripture. I don't have a high view of my own subjective experience. My own relationship with the Holy Spirit is only through Jesus and is governed by the Word of God. And if you don't have that, 
And what will happen out there is you're going to start looking at truth based on how you feel. And that's dangerous. You need the Word of God. There are ways to interpret it. There are things you can learn. It's not infallible in these methods, but it certainly narrows it down. And I could ask questions to people. Do you know the methods? No. Do you know this? No. And then they say, but you can't know. Yes, you can. Just because people have different interpretations doesn't mean there is a right one. There isn't, doesn't mean there isn't there. Because I could do this. This is what I could do. I could say, if, if it's relative how we interpret something, then all I got to do is, whenever Sean says the next thing, all I got to do is say, well, thank you for saying that I'm handsome and good looking and humble. And he says, what are you talking about? Oh, I agree. I'm also very intelligent. <laughs> That's right. And I could interpret whatever he says to mean whatever I want it to mean, if interpretation is really up for grabs. If it's just something we say, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know, really? How do you know that's true? See, it just doesn't work. There's a, it's a danger there. We've got to re rest ourselves on the Word of God. That's what I always point to. Why? That's what Jesus did. And there's a danger in taking the Word of God and saying that men can interpret it literally and, and tell us how to believe in it. There's a danger on both sides. I believe, again, in the Word of God. I believe that... Um, Listen, I agree with Tetelestai and, and how Matt uh, talks about it, but if someone says, I sometimes wonder uh, when I'm thinking if Jesus did suffer more or somehow do more when he went to hell, and I would say, well, I don't think that's the case, but why don't you check it out and keep reading and let the Spirit guide you. And then they have the freedom to consider it. I don't consider them, them blasphemous heretics. The Word of God, you know, I used to be like Matt. We call people out. We tell them they're heretical. We tell them they're not Christian. I know people who have been saved. They're great Christians, been for decades because of some of the people he mentioned and disparagingly tonight. Uh, the, God is using people in different ways. The, the scripture tells us to, you know, watch our mouth. It tells us, you know, and, and so when we start to use it as this tool to judge and make sure that people fit into the boxes that we think are appropriate, we begin to become the opposite of what Jesus wanted us to be. When he walked the earth, there were guys who did the very same thing. They were called scribes and Pharisees. And they made sure that when you came to church, you were wearing socks. And they made sure when you came to church, that you had the proper cross on your neck or you didn't have tattoos or you did. They made sure that every single thing was in order. That's what we've become. And we use the word as our justification. But I think in the first hour we showed that word has not been available. Matt said that we had it earlier than the 1500s. Erasmus, Luther, Calvin, they disagreed on what books should be in the Bible. We have, a, we have a Bible that has 66 books. We have Bibles that have 82 books. You look at the Ethiopian Bible, it's got 82 books. I mean, so we, he says these things because that's what we say, but it's not the reality. Or we could say, well, in America, we have the King James and there's 66 books, but the Catholics don't. They have the apocryphal books in there. Oh, but they're heretic. They're all going to hell. I mean, really? When are we going to dumb down on our stances of demands of everybody and start loving each other. 
in Jesus' name, we will love you. My theology, and I differ with most people on many things, my theology is never, and your theology is never going to get between you and I. I'm going to let God make that decision. I'm going to let him, by the Spirit, lead you and lead me and bring us in. I don't need to police you. The church doesn't need to police you. We don't need to police other people. The Spirit is in charge of the church. Do you walk by faith? Let's trust that. I heard the word, it's dangerous, it's dangerous, several times. I've seen it in real life. I've seen it when people let go of the dogma, study the word, seek God in spirit and truth. I've seen freedom bellow, and there's no real danger. People who have the spirit, where's the danger? They have the spirit of God living in them. Where is the danger? I don't understand it, my brother. Hmm. Um, yes, we can interpret the Bible figuratively and literally. I mean, you have to do that by studying what's called hermeneutics. When God says he spreads his wings, he doesn't literally have wings. When he says all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you can take it literally, all men have sinned. You just need to study how to interpret the Bible. It's actually not that difficult to do. It's because churches are not teaching these things because, in my opinion, they're loyal to denominational differences and denominational preferences. Here's a little example of something. Two men are in the field, one is taken, one is left. People say that's the pre-tribulation rapture. Read the context. It's the wicked who are taken. If you go to Matthew 13, 30, you'll see Jesus saying, what the, the uh, people of the harvest, the time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, first gather the tares. He's saying the first ones gathered when Jesus comes back are the wicked. Go search. I show people this stuff in Scripture. They're blown away what the Word of God actually says. I said this quickly because I want you to do your homework. But people are loyal to denominational things and not to the Word of God too often. I try and help people understand how to interpret the Word of God. And yeah, I'm a five-pointer. I've got good reasons for it. But if you don't agree, okay. Because the Bible says in Romans 14, 1 through 12, particularly in verse 5, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Because the Word says that, I don't have to worry about whether or not, if you believe in limited atonement like I do, if you're a Christian or not, it's not an issue. If you don't agree with me, okay. If you hear me on the radio show, someone will say, yeah, I'm not a Calvinist. I go, all right. We move on. You disagree with the essentials, according to what the scriptures say, that's a problem. Yeah, there are dangers in everything. Yeah, being a scribe, a Pharisee, his position, my position, there's always dangers. But dangers occur because people take them too far. If you have hermeneutical principles of biblical interpretation, that is lessened quite a bit. You go to my website, look up how do we interpret the Bible. Not that it's, oh, this is the right way. Just go read several websites. They'll talk about the same basic thing. It's just common sense. Read the context. What does it say? Read related verses. This is not hard. Go do it. Um, scribes and Pharisees denied Jesus, and they also denied the sufficiency of the Word of God. Because what they were doing was submitting to the Word of God to their subjective interpretations based on traditions. You've got to understand this. This is important. Now, he says, he mentioned the Catholics have the apocryphal books. Go research them. Tobit and Maccabees. And you'll see that they endorse magic and paying cash for redemption of sins. Uh, Jesus never quoted from them, nor did the apostles. 
They were never considered to be scriptures. And I can give you some more reasons for that. There are lots of problems. And the Roman Catholic Church, let me just say this, is apostate. If you believe in official Roman Catholic theology, you're going to hell. Why do I say that? Did you know in Roman Catholicism that which is necessary for salvation includes the church? Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 846. Baptism, paragraph 1270, or 1257. Penance, 980. Sacraments, 1129. Service and witness of the faith, 1816. Keeping the Ten Commandments, 2036 and 2070. And detachment from riches, 2556. So you have to keep the commandments in order to be saved. Yet Paul the Apostle clearly says in Romans 3.28, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, without keeping the Ten Commandments. The one who does not work but believes his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Romans 4.5. What do you got to do? People say, well, that's your interpretation. Uh, yeah, I just quoted it. That's what it says. The Catholic Church can say all it wants. Give me your best stinking priest. Let's have a debate right here about soteriological issues. Let's go, let's go do it. We need the truth. Because if you don't have the truth, then nothing's true. If everything's subjective, then nothing is true. If everything's up to personal interpretations, then nothing is true. And you don't know what the truth is. And you can't say Mormons are not Christians. Or Mormons, it is, Mormonism is false. Or Jehovah's Witness theology is false. In order for us to say what is true, we have to know what is true. In order to say something is false, we have to know what the truth is. And no disrespect to Sean. I like Sean. I actually do. We joke. We kind of take shots at each other. You know, I do. I like him. I actually do. For real. I don't like liking him, but I like him. Can't help it. But the thing is, what he's advocating is dangerous. And he knows that I'm going to say this. It's not me looking down at him. It's just that he's teaching a subjectivity and a doubt of the Word of God. I've seen what, that hap what happens with that after 36 years of studying apologetics. The danger is that then you have the subjective experiences being put over the Word of God. You can know the truth. Jesus did. Oh, and one language to another language? I know I'm hogging the time, but he said a lot of stuff. Jesus quoted the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation by the Jews of the Hebrew Old Testament. Jesus didn't have any problem quoting the Septuagint. And he did. Just because it's translated from one language to another language doesn't mean it's not true or it loses its, its power. Jesus himself quoted the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Well, this, this argument, we can't, you know, the implication, we can't know it if it translated from one language to another language, was it really say? Jesus didn't have a problem with that. Should we? Not at all. The Word of God is still the Word of God. And I agree with the Word of God still. We should have a mic. I could just drop it. That'd be a good point. Mic drop. And, um, and Jesus had, that's, he's really proving my point, is that Jesus quoted from the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. He's proving my point. This epistemus verba, this word perfectness, this literalness, I mean, the apostles were constantly quoting from the Old Testament and paraphrasing it incorrectly. They did it all the time. This, I'm talking about the dogm dogmatism of using the Word as a sword. I believe in reading the Word. I'm not trying to get rid of the Word. And I, I, I don't like the inference, my brother, because I am not saying that again. And our ministry, I think, shows more than ever, ever, ever that we focus on the Word. We sing the Word, for goodness sake. 
So we're about the word. So please don't paint this wrongly. But um, truth is not relative. Truth is truth. But we have difficulty understanding the truth. I am not talking about moral relativism or any sort of relativism. I'm not saying that your truth is, is good and my truth is good. Truth is set. But we have difficulty ascertaining what is true. Uh, Matt said that, um, uh, I got to see my notes. Oh, he quoted Paul that we are to be fully convinced in our own mind. That's all I'm saying. I am not fully convinced in my mind of the Trinity, yet I have been cast out of the church in this state by all my former friends because I said I, I'm not fully convinced. I'm not fully convinced that the Roman Catholics who grow up loving God and seeking God and, and do that religious stuff are going to burn forever in hell. My mind is not fully convinced of that. And so I'm not going to say that I believe that if it's not fully convinced. And I wouldn't expect anybody else to say, I believe it just because it's taught that way. We want freedom in Christ. We want the ability to share our opinions. We want the ability to differ with the status quo. And we have sunk to a level now where we are, I'm sorry, we are, we meanly, we meanly go after each other with the jots and tittles of the New Testament. And here's my, here's my final point. I'll get, we'll go back to Matt. There's a woman named, a woman pastor, black woman pastor here in town. Her name is T. I met her in a bookstore. She believes in obeying the law. Matt just described what Paul said about that. You've never met a, a, a person more devout, seeking God, loves Jesus. She believes the law. I know what the Bible says, but that's taken in context to Paul and that audience at that time who are trying to escape destruction. We have a little lady named Gaylene. Love Gaylene. She has the heart of a child. She's always telling me, we've got to obey the Sabbath day, Sean. I'm, I'm, I'm starting on Friday night, and I'm going to Saturday, and you better start doing it. And I laugh with her, and I say, that's all right, Gaylene. You obey the Sabbath day because you believe that. She's convinced in her own mind. We don't need to go and dissect my point is the Bible has not provided us with every answer that we can say we agree. Every single stance Matt can articulate through diagrams and website, I will show you another man or woman just as smart who can diagram something different. And that's a problem. My brother. I'll work backwards. Um, she wants to say to keep the Sabbath, I would quote her uh, Colossians 2.16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival yearly, a new moon monthly, or a Sabbath day weekly. Praise God. So some people will say you've got to keep the Sabbath. Well, then the scriptures say to the contrary in that sense. I would ask her, what's the reason you want to keep the Sabbath? See, that's the thing. If people want to keep the law. I ask them, you want to keep the law? Keep the law. For what reason? Oh, so that I can keep my salvation with God. I don't say, oh, you're a flaming heretic. I say, we need to talk. Because the Bible says that's not how you do that. You can go to Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. You can go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. You can go to Romans chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, and just read. But you see, people become loyal by their personal experiences to their interpretation of Scripture. And what I often do, like I said, I just quote the references. Don't even let them know. 
that I'm quoting the reference. You know, I believe, you know, I, for example, I believe God creates people for, for, uh, for, for the purposes of evil. I believe it. For the day of destruction, I believe it. Maybe you guys don't believe that. I just quoted Proverbs 16.4. He makes all things, even the wicked for the day of evil. I just quoted it. People say, I don't believe you. Well, what? Go read it. I do this with people all the time. They find that they don't believe in the Word of God. Now, as far as the Trinity goes, I don't know what his view on the Trinity is. I've met people who say, I don't believe in the Trinity. Well, let's just talk about it and see what you think it is. Or see what you think it isn't. And then I often find that, yeah, they, they do believe in the Trinity, or they just need a little bit of clarification. We need to talk about that sometime. I think it's worth discussing. And I honestly don't know what, what he said about it. He said, I don't believe in it. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I haven't cross-examined him on that to see, according to what the Scriptures say. I know how it's arrived at. As far as Catholicism goes, I said official Roman Catholic theology is heretical, and it is more particularly in the issue of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Go to my website, read the articles. Women pastors, sorry, she's disobeying God's Word. And trust me, I can go through that as well. Women are not to be in positions of authority, teaching authority over men in the church. If you don't like that, I'll tell you what. Come up with your Bible, and I'll tell you what verses to mark out of your Scripture so they don't bother you anymore. Because this is what it says. I didn't make it up. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. Trust me. I can quote you the references and defend the position from Scripture. You see, we need to quote the Scriptures, just as Jesus did. What's really interesting is, you know, he said the Pharisees quoted the Old Testament. They did it incorrectly. How would you know? If it's up to personal interpretation and personal preferences, then your interpretation and your idea has no more validity or invalidity from theirs. But if he's going to say, yes, they quoted the Scriptures incorrectly, then he's saying there is a right way to understand it. And thereby, by in so doing, he's refuting himself in several areas. How would you know if their interpretation is right? You've got to go to the Word of God. We don't have too much difficulty understanding the truth, ladies and gentlemen. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Is that hard to understand? Apart from the works of the law. That's how you're justified. Is that a big deal? So people say, no, I've got to keep the commandments to be saved. What part of apart from the works of the law do you not understand? And people say, well, there's divisions. Yeah, because you're not believing what it says. What does it say? <laughs> That's the issue. What does it say? Read it. And when it becomes more difficult, that's when you need hermeneutics. And if people were to start doing this, there'd be far less division in the body of Christ. It's ridiculous. I personally am of the opinion that the reason there's so much division, which is shameful, is because people are not subjecting themselves to the Word of God. Because they're trusting their opinions. They're trusting what they think the Spirit of God's telling them. And they're not submitting themselves to the Word of God, which is what Jesus himself did. Which is what Paul the Apostle did in Acts 17, 11. He apparently understood or believed that the Bereans were able to check what he said against Scripture, and he believed they could rightly understand it. And he said, way to go. That implies we can understand the Word of God. I can help you understand it. We're going to uh, wrap up with concluding remarks, and then we're going to go to the phones with the remaining time. And uh, uh, my concluding <coughs> remarks... To, uh, Matt, take as much time as you need. I'll be fairly short. Um, Matt's solution is not possible. It's not viable. He says, I'll show you, I'll show you, I'll show you. And I've made it clear, I've tried to make it clear that he can't any more effectively than any other person who claims they can show who differ with Matt. This is our problem. 
Uh, he says we can give you the tools of hermeneutics. We disagree. So when we disagree, here's my question, what do we do? And I'm just trying to say, I know we will disagree. I know that the word needs to be parsed better and understood better, but we don't divide. And if you disagree on Trinitarianism, you disagree on if Jesus finished on the cross or in hell, you disagree on if the Holy Spirit's a person or not, or baptism, or Sabbath day, or whatever it is, keep going. Receive the love. Be part of the body. You know, you might be, a, you know, I love the Word of God. I read it as, in, as much as I can. I love hearing it. And it's, I do it because it helps me to know who God is and His Son, and that is life eternal. That's why I read it. I believe it to be a map for every individual believer that where they are in their life, in their, in their maturity level, and where they are as they read and as they study and as they grow in maturity, they will see the word in different ways. And that's up to the Holy Spirit to let them grow and mature. You know, people say, Sean, you never knew Christianity. Well, let me grow and mature. Oh, but you're a teacher. I teach what I know. There's people out there who they believe what I know right now. What is what? I believe the written word is a wonderful gift. And, 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 but it has to be spiritually discerned. And... The content, I contend that its contents reflect material advice to a time that is long gone. It's done. Even the writer of Hebrews says, that which is shakable, I'm going to shake one more time. So the only thing that can remain is that which cannot be shaken. When we read that word, it can be shaken. It can be shaken by all of us through interpretation. When we build brick and mortar, that can be shaken. When we look to a pastor and give him authority, that can be shaken. All of that's shaken. But Christ through the Spirit cannot be shaken. And God lives in, it, in our hearts. I also believe that the book itself does not commend its material directives to a future people. I don't see that. Women preaching in church was very appropriate to the time and age and the chaos that was going on around them. Very wrong to try to bring Jews into a church where a woman stands up to teach, let me tell you. So they didn't. Today, what? Because she has a vagina, she can't teach? She's, she's inferior? Oh, I know what Paul said, but the context of that was for then. This is the problem. We continue to perpetuate this stuff that has no bearing on the good news. I maintain that all views, all reasonable views within the contents ought to, to not only be tolerated, but discussed and openly allowed by all believers. I believe that the law kills. The letter kills. And that includes the letters written on, with ink on paper. It kills. And it has killed the body for years. It's time for revolution. And here's why. We're facing a time when science... And, and genetic stances and evolutionary practices and sin and all of this stuff are running rampant. And we have focused on all of this law to divide and hurt each other. When we should be united, let the superfluous go. Let people grow by the Spirit. And let's be a place that our teenagers and our children and our grandchildren and our young adults 
that they can come and they can have the expressions that the colleges allow them to have. Instead of feeding them all the rhetoric that says, no, this is how it is. Because if we don't, we're going to lose more and more and more. We need to be smart. We need to step up and stop with the archaic divisions that are simply created because men want, them, want themselves to be able to say, this is how it is. Men need, we need to swallow our pride. We need to stop saying, this is how it is. Because there are very, very, very few things that we can say, this is how it is. Very few things. And maybe we can have Matt back and we can talk about, he can tell us, this is how it is. And I can say, I don't think so. My brother, I love you. I'm grateful for your wisdom and your knowledge, your love of the word of God, your ability to articulate it, the lives you've affected by defending the word of God. But I, I will ardently maintain that every individual has the right with the Holy Spirit in them by faith in Christ to understand that word as they are led, when they are led, and for us to get along in love. My brother, wrap it up, and then we'll go to the phones. All right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, my solution is viable. Yeah, you can learn basic principles of interpretation. If I were to write a letter to you about, um, uh, you know, how to fix a certain part of a car, and then you were to say, well, you know, it's how do you interpret it. You'd say, no, that's not correct. Just follow the instructions. No, we can't just say, look, it's all interpretation. No, it's not all interpretation. If it's all interpretation, then I'm interpreting what he said as meaning that I'm correct and he's not right. See, it's not all interpretation. It's self-refuting. It's not true. You can't hold to something that's not true. It's self-refuting. There are essentials in the Bible. I can tell you what they are. It's not me saying it. If Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. The resurrection of Christ is an essential. That's an example. If you uh, do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins, John 8, 24. That's what Jesus said. That's an essential. It's, this is not difficult. The, we know the essentials. We need to die for the essentials. Everything else, okay. Let's argue, have fun, disagree. You know, go get a sandwich together, things like that. Now, some people may say, well, it depends on which essentials. That's another issue for another time. Which, I mean, which non-essentials I meant. Now, when we disagree, we have to go to the Word of God and examine it. Now, this is something I haven't really been able to focus on very much. Look, when we go to the Word of God, we got people here who go to my Bible study that I've taught. And I teach very adamantly about things. And when people disagree, I'm open to that. And what do I say? I say, show me. Maybe I'm incorrect about something. I want to hear from the Word of God what the truth is. Because now, if I say, I'm being humble, you know, oh, Matt's boasting. Look, humility, I heard the best explanation of what humility is, is knowing your proper place before God. Well, I know my place before God. He's the Lord, I'm not. He's the Holy One, I'm the sinner saved by grace. And we can go to His Word, and we can humbly say that we need to be loving to one another when it comes to the differences and the non-essentials. And my friends here who are here, they know that's the case with me. They know I, I'm quite competent in defending my positions. But if you disagree, I don't get mad. I don't call them heretics. See, it's okay. Because there needs to be a humility with this. There needs to be a love that goes along with this. With love, there's unity. We don't see enough of this in the body of Christ. That's why people are turning away from the proper doctrine of love to the issue of subjective experience.
Now, if the Bible says something plainly, then that's what it says. You know, Acts 4.12, for example, there's no other name under heaven by which a man may be saved. No other name other than Jesus, Acts 4.12. Is it true? Yes. Well, then that means those who have not put their faith and their trust in Jesus can't be saved. I don't care how sincere they are. This is a hard truth. Truth doesn't care about your feelings. But when we look at subjective experiences, we're appealing to our feelings. Truth is independent of what you want. Truth is what it is, and it offends, and people don't like it. Women teaching, was it wrong back then? Yes. And why is it wrong now? Because Paul's appeal to the created order. Because he says, for Adam was first created, 1 Timothy 2, 13. Therefore, it's not just a cultural thing. In the next chapter, 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, I'm giving instruction to the household of God. I'm believing what it says. Personally, I have no problem with women pastors. Personally. The scriptures speak differently, so therefore the scriptures are the final authority. Now, Sean, you said, we need to stop saying, this is how it is. And saying, but that, that is to say this is how it is. To say, you need to stop saying this, is to say this is how we, what we should be doing. This is self-refutation. And when things are self-refuted and they're not true, we shouldn't follow them. What we should follow is the Word of God. Just because we have interpretational difficulties doesn't mean we can't trust it. Doesn't mean it's not the proper place of its authority. It means we need to learn all the more in humility how to interpret it so that we can be unified. But it's the final authority, not our hearts. Not our subjective experience of what we think the Word of God is based on a feeling we get that we think is the Holy Spirit. I've been in the Holy Spirit's presence. It undoes you. It completely lays you out. And I don't like it when people say, the Holy Spirit told me. Really? Were you weeping? Were you saying, whoa, 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 the Holy No, you know, I just, you know, we're buds, we're talking. Really? I'm going to go to the Word of God instead. If I hear someone say, the Holy Spirit told me, and I can tell you what he said, but it took me four days to recover from his presence, maybe I'll listen to you. Because in the presence of God, people are undone. In the presence of truth, their feet get stepped on. Jesus called people to himself and the Word of God, not experiences. If you want unity in the body of Christ, humble yourself before the Word of God. Both the incarnation of Christ and what He says in the Word. And He gave us that Word in order to direct us and to guide us. Don't make the mistake of subjecting it to your personal interpretations and feelings. That's a mistake. That's where cults get going. Trust the Word of God. Lean on the Word of God just as Jesus did. We have the ability to interpret it. Differences are okay, as long as they are maintained with love. The essentials, I can teach you with the orphan scripture, we die for those. The rest, we need to love each other. All right? Okay, you and I, we got to switch. Oh, no, they moved the phone. Okay, we're going to open up questions to the audience. We have a mic here if you want to come up. We also have a Mark from Ireland, Shalice from Surprise, Arizona, and Chris, Chris, Christian from, is that right? From Olympia, Christian. Washington. Um, so let's, we're going to go to Mark in Ireland last uh, because he always wants to be first. 
and it's not long distance for him. So let's go to Shalice in Surprise, Arizona. Shalice, you're on Heart of the Matter with Matt and Sean. Hey, Sean, how are you? Good, how you doing? Doing good. First off, I just want to say how much we love your show and how inspired we've been through you. Oh, thanks. Um, we, my husband and I have been a member of the church for 34 years, and we have just walked away from the church and Mormonism. Praise and, God. Um, I have had a few, I just have a couple of questions. Um, our journey all started out with uh, my husband um, was married previously before me, as well as I, and it all kind of started with his temple ceiling. Like, he wasn't able to get, they wouldn't grant him a cancellation, and it would only grant him a, a, a clearance, so that really bothered me because I don't really like the fact that we practice polygamy. Yeah. Or, and they deny it, pretty much. They deny it, they don't say it, they don't, they don't practice it, but really they actually do. Right. So that all kind of started with my journey. And um, I found out about um, not too long ago, and I just want to get your perspective on the temple name, the sacred temple name that they give you in the temple. Yeah. Um, they tell you all this sacredness, that it's so wonderful and great and not to ever tell anybody. But um, I was talking to my sister about the temple, and she she she's left the church about two years ago, and she was able to like look up my so-called sacred name online. What's your take on that? I guess um, we talked about this today. Why actually, they, why do they say that your sa sacred temple name is? To me, it's not so sacred. So why do they hide that? Because <laughs> they lie. <laughs> uh, yeah. So where do they get this? Where do they get these names? Do you they, know? They get them from scripture, typically. And uh, from Book of Mormon and the Bible, and what they do is they get a name, and if you go through the temple for the first time that uh, that day, you get this. Everybody gets the same name on that day, yeah. so they keep a record of it, and it's not very sacred, is it? No, it, that's <laughs> kind of what had me. Like when she told me that, I was like, "This is ridiculous!" Like Good. I could not believe. I was so angry. Like I was so angry with that. I. Because they sit there and say it's so sacred and holy, and it's just for you. But then come to find out, I hear that everybody has this name. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Well, at least yours isn't Mahan Rai Ankamer like <laughs> mine. Brother Jared, that <laughs> was yours? I'm just kidding. Oh. And then, <laughs> Go ahead, Shelly's. No way. So, yeah, like, it's ridiculous. So, and then how do you handle, um, my husband's family has greatly shunned us. They are very devout Mormons. My father-in-law has been in state presidency, has been a bishop, and we finally told them that we're no longer, and they have shunned us completely. How do you, how do you deal with stuff like that? I mean, don't you think that that is, they say that they're all holier than thou and great and Christ-like. That's not very Christ-like. How do you... It's pretty painful, isn't it, when you get ostracized by people who claim to have the truth. Uh, you know, yeah. my sister, the best thing to do is draw to the Lord, uh, find a good Bible-teaching church that you can trust out there, in, uh, yeah. and, and then be Christ to your family. Let them see that leaving yeah. the church has improved your life, not hurt it. So don't go uh, bar hopping yeah. and getting arrested and 
all that stuff, <laughs> but, but love your family, your parents, honor them more than you did as a Latter-day Saint. Don't bring up the, all the hard questions to them at Christmas and Thanksgiving and just keep loving okay. and in time your siblings and and maybe your parents and more will keep will come to you and they'll talk to you so uh that's wonderful that's kind of our goal that we set as well praise god um, we'll keep you in prayer a lot, of, a lot of what what helped us through this journey as well is i have a lot of devout christian friends and they have inspired me praise god in so many ways and we found a wonderful bible teaching class a wonderful christian church that I feel more inspired going there and I can't wait to go next week than I ever did being a Mormon. Isn't that wonderful when you can't wait to go to church? You know, it's a wonderful thing. Praise God, my sister. Thanks for watching. We're going to go to some other calls. Thank you. We love you. We love you you too. Bye-bye. We're going to Kristen. I'm sorry for butchering your name. uh, In Olympia, Washington. And then we have some on stage calls before we go to Mark in Ireland. Kristen, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Good. How you doing? Good. Um, so first, I just want to say I really, uh, you know, enjoy having you invite Matt or him invite himself or however, however that works. I invited uh, him. Yeah. <laughs> he invites himself to dinner, uh, but I invite him to the show. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, uh, you, know, I, you know, I love these discussions that you guys do, just the, the dialogues and everything, and, um, you know, I think you, you both provide good insight on everything and what Matt does and I keep talking about Matt like he's not in the room. <laughs> hey Matt, how's it going? Hey, it's going fine. <laughs> All right, well, now that the ice is broken. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, uh, real quick, um, I, was, I just had a, just a question. I don't know if this will bring up any discussion between you two or not, but um, I just, something I've been kind of wrestling with is, uh, like, what reasons do we have to, su- to support that the thought of Jesus came at, like, just the right time, at just the right place, to just the right people, at arriving where he did, when he did, just, uh, I guess in other words, how was the world at the time ready for him and his message? Well, I'd my two cents, then he can wrap it up. He's far more uh, learned than me, but I mean, that's the time during the Pax Romana when the roads were right and, and, and things were just prepared in the meridian of time, in the, in the dispensation of the fullness of time, for Christ to come and at the right moment of the nation of Israel being under Roman rule. And uh, scripture gives plenty of evidence that this was calculated, known of God from the foundation of the world, and Christ came just at the right time. Any more details you give? Yeah, it'd just be minor details. It's just basically saying the same thing. It was all arranged by God. It worked out at the right time. Yeah. That's why. Praise God. He does it right, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Hey, thanks for watching, Christian. Yeah, have a good night. Okay, bye. I'm on a ride, going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going This man's awake a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkey star.